Well, good morning, College Park. Thank you for being such wonderful, gracious hosts over the course of this weekend. And again, a special thank to, thanks to Joe for all of for his friendship and also for his leadership in this opportunity that I've shared with so many of you to talk about revival. What a privilege to talk about this blessing that comes from God to those who ask, to those who seek Him. It comes to those who recognize that there's more, that there's more to this life with Christ, that there can be this blessing come upon all of us, starting with any one of us and spreading to the rest. So thank you to those who have come out and Again, I've gotten to know so many of you, and it's been a great privilege. And again, I can tell that the Spirit dwells in this place, and I trust that He will guide us in our exploration of this great revival text of Isaiah 64 this morning. Have you ever made a pact with God? A pact with God. God, if you're out there, just give me a sign. Give me a sign, God. And then we wait for the mountains to tremble, the thunder, the lightning. We get that tan like Charlton Heston got in the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. You know, we're expecting this big sign when we make these pacts with God. Or maybe instead of making a pact with God, you prefer to bargain with Him. Prefer to bargain with God. God, if you get me out of this traffic ticket, I'll start tithing. Okay, Or, God, if you get me through this illness, I'll never miss church again. I'll never miss church again. If you get my child on the straight and narrow, then I'll never ask for anything again. What do these pacts, what do these prayers reveal about God? What do they reveal to us about what we think? about God. A few things, I think. They reveal that sometimes we think God feels distant, as if He's forgotten about us, and that He doesn't really care about us. Or that sometimes God seems angry, seems angry, and He's punishing us. That's what I think some of these prayers reveal. Or that sometimes God seems lazy, Lazy, if he just doesn't understand the urgency of our situation, if he really understood, if he really cared, he'd do something about this. He'd help me out. Distant, angry, lazy. That's not a pretty picture of God. Not a pretty picture of God. In fact, in fact, what is the difference between making a pact with God and a deal with the devil? I mean, this kind of God, right? I mean, it's basically the same thing. If you do this, then I'll do that. This is the way we reason sometimes. But is this really, is this really how God acts? Is this really how He regards us? Is this really how He's revealed Himself to us through His Word, through passages like Isaiah 64? I would argue that Isaiah 64 tells a much different story than the one that we often tell through these prayers to God. A different story about a God who is always, always there for us. 
always there for us, who always cares, even when He feels distant, even when we sin and deserve His wrath, even then, even then. It also reminds us, and this is absolutely key to anything else that we're going to look at this morning, or for as long as you're walking with the Lord. Isaiah 64 also reveals who it is at the center of the universe. And as you've just read, it's not us. It is not us. And when we understand, when we get it right, that God is the one at the center of the universe, that He alone created, then we start to understand and we start to align our lives according to the belief that God does all things. What seems confusing to us, what seems slow to us, what seems so unfair to us, for His glory above all else. And as Joe prayed, in His glory is our good. In His glory is our good. And this, this is really the best news that we have, that we have to apply to our own lives and to share to anybody else because it's the way that we begin to trust that God will do this sovereign God who created the world will do the right thing in all circumstances. He will do right by us. This is in fact, this is in fact our only hope, our only hope for help when all seems lost. We can go to Him. We can plead with Him, not through pacts or bargains, but with pleas, calling Him to account. We can plead with Him on this basis, not to get us out of jams necessarily, but to spread His fame, to protect His reputation, to do right by us for His glory, for His purposes, to spread His fame among the nations. So the point that I want to explore with you this morning from Isaiah 64 is this. When God seems distant, when He seems distant to you, call Him to account. Call Him to account and wait. And wait. God is there and He cares. God is there and He cares for us. But how do we know this? Isaiah 64 shows us how Because God demonstrates His care for us through His earth-shaking acts, through His fatherly discipline, and ultimately through His sure promises. So let's look first how God demonstrates His care through earth-shaking acts. Isaiah 64, our reading this morning, could have begun probably in Isaiah 63, 19 where he cries out, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Of course, this is the very, this is the very purpose of Israel, that he ruled them, that he did call them by his name. But that's not the way Israel felt at this time. They felt distant. They actually felt the very wrath of God. Isaiah lived during a time of tremendous turmoil, remarkable turmoil. He served from about 740 to 700 B.C. The northern kingdom, if you know your history of Israel, you might be familiar with this story, but the northern kingdom of Israel, 
It split at the time. South was Judah, north Israel. The north had already been conquered. Well, they were conquered in about the middle of Isaiah's tenure as a prophet in 722. They actually, the north had been much powerful, much more powerful historically than the south, but at the same time, they probably even outdid the south in their sin, in their idolatry against God. So in this context, we certainly see earth shaking acts, but not of the sort that we might have expected because using a pagan empire to slaughter and to exile the people who bore God's name was certainly not what they expected from the one who had called them by his name and ruled over them. But Isaiah, as you see even in the transition of Isaiah 64, Isaiah and Israel had also seen the grace of God. You can read about it in chapters 36 and 37, almost like a a powerful little historical interlude in this book of prophecy. All but Jerusalem, actually. Remember, the northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria, but basically so had the rest of the southern kingdom, except for Jerusalem. They had fallen to the Assyrian army. And in fact, one of the things, intimidation is always a major factor in battle, okay? So one of the things that the Assyrians did that absolutely terrified the men who were standing guard on top of the walls of the city of David was this, and actually Eric helped us to understand this before we sung one of those songs earlier. They actually used the name of Yahweh, the covenant name revealed only to Israel, as they said this to intimidate those men. None of the other gods saved their people. Yahweh can do nothing to stop us. And they had all the evidence on their side. They had conquered all the other nations. This was a very, very powerful nation in this period. But what followed has been rightly commemorated as one of the greatest moments in the history of Jerusalem. But it came as revival so often does... It came when they humbled themselves, following the example of King Hezekiah, who asked Isaiah to intercede on his behalf, on their behalf, with God. And how did Yahweh then respond to this prayer? Isaiah 36 and 37, with the words that all of us long to hear during our trials, and during our turmoil, when we're waiting Him to perform some earth-shaking acts, He said to Israel, do not be afraid. How many times have we heard that throughout Scripture? When the angels come, when God reveals Himself, do not be afraid. When you belong to God, you do not need to fear Him. But when you belong to God, you do not need to fear Him. You must then put off the idols. Idols can do nothing like God and His earth-shaking acts because after all, God is the Creator alone and sustainer of the universe, sovereign over the nations. He makes the kingdoms like Assyria, like Israel. He makes the kingdoms to rise and fall. He speaks and the mountains tremble, we learn here in Isaiah 64. So when you are facing these trials like Hezekiah faced, whatever, however small, however large they might be, I want want us to look together. If you want to, you can turn back to Isaiah 37. And look in verses 16 to 20. But I want to use these as a model for how we pray 
and how we petition God during when he seems distant to us, when it seems like he's so slow to act and as if he doesn't care for us. So go ahead and we'll, I'll read Isaiah 37, 16 to 20. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So, what happened when Hezekiah prayed this way? How did the Lord respond? Well, he responded with an incredible earth-shaking act. He sent an angel of the Lord to kill 185,000 of the greatest warriors from the most powerful empire of its day in the known world forcing then this king, Sennacherib, to withdraw from Jerusalem. And in fact, Sennacherib, when he went home, he worshipped one of his false gods, one of those idols that he'd crafted out of his hands. And as he did this, his own sons killed him. I'd say that qualifies as an earth-shaking act that God performs to deliver his people when they cry out to him for help on the basis of his promises. Well, do your prayers reflect the fact that God can, indeed, does work in this way? What are your prayers like? Are they like this? If not, you can find so many more of these throughout Scripture to guide us in prayer. So often we wonder how to pray and we find ourselves casting about, pray along with the Scriptures. They'll teach you. They'll teach you to pray these large prayers Do you put your, when you pray, are you confident that God cares about you enough to deliver you from your enemies no matter what it takes? Because when you know that God cares for you, and when you know, most importantly, that God jealously guards his own reputation, his own glory, then you will be able to call him to account. Then you'll be able to call him to account just as Hezekiah did. This is, I think, a little bit of what it might sound like for us to do this today. Okay? Well, do you hear, God, what they're saying about me on account of you? Do you hear, God, the things that they're saying? What they're saying about me for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, for inviting others to share in this joy that belongs to sinners, saved by grace through Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection, putting death to death. God, do you hear what they're saying about me on account of you because I'm preaching this good news and inviting my family, my friends, my neighbors to join me in this relationship with you? Do you hear, God, what they're saying about you? Do you hear what they're saying about you? That you're impotent to act. 
that you can't even rouse yourself to do anything about this world, that you don't even exist. Do you hear this, God? Do you hear this, what they're saying about you? Or do you see, God, these idols that they worship? Do you see them, how this this world seems ruled by money, by sex, by power? Do you see this, God? Do you see what's happening here? This is what Isaiah means when he asks God to tear open the heavens, to rend the heavens and to come down. Just like Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Again, not some sort of rote prayer, but the most powerful thing you can say, let it be on earth, God, just as it is in heaven. Because in heaven is where God rules with all power, all mercy, all goodness and justice. God performed these earth-shaking acts among us on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens in a revival. And that's how the scriptures teach us to pray for these earth-shaking acts. God demonstrates his care for us through those acts, but he also demonstrates his care for us through fatherly discipline. Why doesn't our father act? Why does it? Why do we sometimes feel like orphans, like he's abandoned us? Part of it is because I think it's tough for us to realize that God's timing is not always our timing. Go ahead and look with me again at Isaiah 64:4. If you want something that'll help you get through many, many difficult times that are sure to come. A passage that's helped me in powerful ways every time I come across it. Isaiah 44.4 Commit it to memory if you can. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. But those might be, in my opinion, I don't know about yours, the three hardest words to believe and to practice in the entire English language. Wait for Him. Spend the rest of our lives trying to put that discipline into practice. To wait for Him. That's sanctification, really. Growing in holiness and holiness evident by the fact that we wait on Him to act on behalf of those that He loves. The thing is, where else are you going to turn for deliverance in your time of trial? Where else are you going to go? What other hope do you have? Isaiah, the entire book, is a relentless attack on idols. A relentless attack on idols. These things, we, we often associate them with something like, say, the golden calf. And then they become, I think, quite foreign to us. Something that ancient peoples did. But not things that we do today. But really... Really, this is anything that we put our trust in apart from God. Anything that we worship. The thing is, these these idols, they may not be golden calves, but nevertheless, they are manufactured by our own two hands. We make them, and this is what Isaiah uses so much, like basically sarcasm throughout the book, essentially mocking idolaters and saying, you make them with your own two hands. You built this thing out of wood and now you're bowing down to worship it. What sense does that make? That is ridiculous. Do you not see the folly of what you're doing? Ultimately, it's not the idol that's dumb. 
It's us. It's us. We're the ones who worship what we made. The thing is, this is so difficult for us because this hits close to home because we're all idolaters in one sense or another because we're the ones who trust in our children to fulfill us, to fulfill us. And how do we know that we're idolizing our children? It's when we rage at them when we don't, they don't do what we want. Okay, I mean, obedience is a good thing, something that we rightly seek as parents, but the rage that comes reveals something else about us, that we've invested our hopes in them. We, we trust in our jobs to give us purpose, to give us meaning in life. So what do we do? We bow down and we worship the idol, killing ourselves working unsustainable hours. That's idolatry today. We trust in our money to secure us. And we end up shedding tears of helplessness as our home values decline, our jobs disappear, and our retirement savings vanish. That's what idolatry looks like for all of us. We all struggle in one arena or another. The truth is, when we fail to wait for God, fail to wait for God, what happens is we incur His fatherly discipline. But that's because God loves us. Again, that's what you do as a parent, right? You love your children, so you discipline them. And that's what God does with us. Because the idols are bound to fail. When they fail, we fall apart. That's His discipline. That is a grace to you. Because He won't stop at anything until He gets you. Until His heart belongs to you and you do not worship then anything else but Him and Him alone. That's what He's after in sanctification. That's what He'll be doing with you for the rest of your life because He is your Father in heaven and He wants all of you and He's bringing you, preparing you for everlasting life with Him. So where does your patience give out? Where do you lose your patience? When do your frustrations arise when is it hardest for you to trust God that's the examination that we need this morning that examination because that reveals to us where those idols lay and where God is probably going to discipline us one way or another in fact it was examining their collective sin just like I'm calling for us to do this morning and I that led in Isaiah 64, verses 6 to 7, led Isaiah the prophet to speak on behalf of Israel to eventually then confess God as Father. They, they examined themselves, found themselves to be with sin as idolaters, led them then to confess God as Father, to see their situation and to intervene. So go ahead and look with me at verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Consider especially that, that phrase, righteous deeds like a polluted garment. That's a sanitized version, really. I'll spare you the gory details. That's a, English, the translators did us a favor there. Really, the point is, our best, even our righteous deeds, are soiled. Even what we think we're doing for God in some way is is soiled 
because of sin. Not, not everything necessarily that we do, but the thing is, we are people of mixed motives. We do good things sometimes for the wrong reasons. We've all done that. But again, it shows, it shows that this is, restoring that relationship with the Father is not about then going out to necessarily do all the right things if the heart isn't in the right place. Because it shows in verse 7 then that no one pursues God. I'll read, this is one who calls, there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. No one pursues God. But God pursues us. God pursues us. That's the good news. That's the hope. Just like in the parable of the prodigal son, that's why it's so powerful. Jesus' teaching, the prodigal goes far away from God. We're prodigals even in our righteous deeds, but God comes for us. He comes to find us, to bring us home, to discipline us because of our good. The prodigal doesn't earn his way, though. He doesn't earn his way back into his father's favor like we are so apt to want to do. Thing is, you can try to bribe your idols. You can try to work harder. You can try to discipline your children more effectively. You can try to plan financially. You can try all that, and those things aren't necessarily bad. It's about where the heart is. If they're idols, all of that may seem like you're making an effort to try to bribe them, but it won't do you any good, ultimately. It won't change the fundamental problem, because the living God, your only hope for deliverance, you can't coerce Him. You cannot coerce Him into that behavior. You don't appease Him with that. Again, He wants our hearts, not appeasement. He wants our hearts, not these... Not these mixed motive righteous deeds necessarily. He wants us to obey, certainly. But he wants that heart first and foremost. A heart out of which flows this obedience. Out of love for the Father who disciplines. Like our good Father, he will not stop until he has those hearts. And he will discipline us when necessary. So he demonstrates his care through earth-shaking acts. Also through his fatherly discipline, and he also demonstrates his care through his sure promises. As you know from somebody who's thrown out promises, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. It's only as trustworthy as the one who makes it. Well, scholars of Isaiah 64 believe that he is recalling, on the basis of these promises, earlier earlier evidence of God's character in delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. So examples would be in 64.2, the fire that would recall then the burning bush out of which God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3. Or also in Isaiah 64.2, the trembling at God's presence recalls then Mount Sinai when God quaked, which quaked as God made his covenant with Israel in Exodus 19. So again, they're recalling that God is trustworthy based on those promises, those those acts of deliverance that he's done before. But how different was that day of deliverance than Isaiah's own day that he's recalling that we've just been reading and exploring this morning? 
Once Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians, but now they were slaves to their own sin. Slaves to themselves, slaves to their own sin. They had seen the cities of Judah, all of them but Jerusalem, destroyed. They'd seen their neighbors murdered. They'd seen them deported. How different was this day than the day of the Exodus? The prophet Isaiah actually then in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 64 foresaw what was to come, which was even worse, the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple. The temple, the place where Yahweh dwelled. These were horrible things the prophet Isaiah foresaw. So how did Isaiah know? And ultimately then, how do we know that God is there? That God really cares about what's happening? Because it sure didn't look that way in Isaiah's day. In some of your lives today, again, it probably doesn't look that way either. Restoring that relationship then with God, that trust between us and God, it requires us to remember one thing and it requires God to forget another. It requires us to remember one thing and God to forget another. Isaiah 64, 5 says, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. And I wondered for a while, what does it mean to joyfully work righteousness and that God will meet that person. Well, it's really explained right there in the next part of the verse, which is those who remember God in His ways. So that's what we need to remember. We remember God in His ways, just as Isaiah was remembering God in His ways of the Exodus. Well, what we remember, certainly the Exodus, certainly the delivery in the day of Hezekiah, but we also remember chiefly another prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. Hopefully, you're familiar with these. They tell of a servant who will suffer on our behalf. Though he had done nothing wrong, oh, he'd done nothing wrong, he suffered on our behalf. He would accept the punishment that we deserve, the wrath that was bound for us. And more than 700 years after Isaiah's death, That servant did indeed endure death on a cross. Where? In Jerusalem, in the same city. The same city where they were begging for deliverance in this day. We remember then, we remember this act until he comes again, until Jesus comes again. We remember it in many ways. Remember it through the Lord's Supper that we partake again and again by sharing the bread and sharing the cup. We remember it with the songs that we sing those beautiful songs that we sang this morning. This is what we remember. We remember these promises. Promises fulfilled. Promises kept. That is the basis of our trust for God. Second, again, we see God needs to forget something. In Isaiah 64, 9, we see that God requires, that God forgets our iniquity. He forgets then our guilt. And why does He choose not to remember that? Again, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. So when God seems distant, when He seems distant to you, remember what Jesus has done. Remember what this suffering servant endured because of His love for us, because of His love for the church. Remember the price. Remember the price of your peace. 
the price of your peace. This is why you can trust in God's beautiful promises that no matter what you suffer, God will never abandon you, Christian. You remember, your, you remember God's ways and He will remember to care for you. The promises then, if the promises of Isaiah 52 and 53 belong to you, I have more good news than the promises of Isaiah 65 also belong to you. A new heavens and a new earth. No weeping, no tornadoes, no measles, no distress, where even the wolf and the lamb graze together. Beautiful promises. We trust that they are sure because the cross is sure. We remember that. Well, holding God to account as Isaiah does in this passage this morning, it may seem somewhat strange, even maybe presumptuous to some. It's not the language we always use because I think many people get this wrong. They expect then that we, by calling him to account, we're holding him to our standards and treating him like he's some sort of divine butler there to serve us at our every whim. I think that's where people get this wrong. But really, what we're talking about here is what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to that cross for us. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's what we're seeking here but God continues, I think, going forward. He continues to feel distant for us, from us for, I think, at least three reasons I'll go through now. One is just our sin. He seems distant from us. When He seems distant to you, it may be because of your sin. Remember that polluted garment of Isaiah 64, 6. He may be disciplining us. He may be warning us against further disobedience. Okay, that, that's one thing he might be doing. He might feel, feel distant for that reason. He also may feel distant for our rebellion, serving ourselves, serving our idols rather than the one true God. We want it to be in heaven like our paradise on earth. We, we just flip it around. In heaven as our paradise on earth. But Isaiah 64, 8 confronts that directly. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. So our prayer then, the prayer of any revival, mold me as you want, Father, for the glory of your name. Again, he may be may feel distant because of our rebellion, but again, this is how we restore that relationship. Or finally, God may seem distant for our unforeseen good. He may feel distant for that reason. Well, the great theologian Garth Brooks once thanked God for unanswered prayers. You may, you may recall that song. Can you imagine how horrible your life would be if God answered every one of your prayers that you've ever given? Can you imagine some of the crazy things you've prayed for at one point? We hardly know, we hardly fathom what is in our best interest. But not God our Father. He knows what's in our best interest. He knows what's in our best timing. He does not promise to save us from every hardship in this life, to save us from pain, or from ever from saving us from ever having to say we're sorry. He doesn't promise any of those things. But He promises something beyond our imagination. He promises that He will conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 He promises that we'll see God face to face 
one day. That's what he promises. To know God in such a way that he'll never feel distant again. That's his promise. He promises that we'll never have to doubt again. That he is there for us. And that he cares. Those are his promises for you. Let's pray about them now. Father, we are so grateful that we know that we can trust in your promises because of what you have already done for all of us who believe. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins. And on the basis of the power of the resurrection, God, we pray that you would revive us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with this undeserved blessing. Because we recognize God and we acknowledge that in our good, our only good is ultimately your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Colin. Our aim for carrying this theme and bringing it to you this weekend and particularly on the Lord's Day today about the subject of revival is a fairly simple reason. It is simply that we want you to realize that for God to take His church and to take you as a part of it and to bring you to a new and fully orbed reality of that relationship with Jesus is both good for you and part of God's design. In other words, he, God doesn't want you in a position of spiritual decline. In fact, the reason you came today, I hope, is because you had a longing to be able to meet with God. And yet the reality is, every single day we fight a challenge. And the challenge, as Colin has talked about, is to believe the promise of God in opposition to what we see or what we feel. And and here's a promise in Jeremiah 29, and it says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I don't know about you, but I read a promise like that, and there's sometimes things happen in my life, and I, I'm like, I don't see a point in this. And yet this word tells me that there is a point. And then it says this, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So here's the promise. The promise is this is that God says that when you come and seek Him, when you seek Him with all your heart, that He will be found by you. And I don't know where God has you in your spiritual journey today. You may be a person just simply trying to figure out the claims of Christ and what it means to be a Christian. And you know what? Today may be the very day when God opens your eyes and helps you to see, you know what? I've, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And the Bible says if you seek Him, you'll find Him. It may be also that you're here and you know Christ is your Savior, but this idea of being revived is really what you need. It's, it's, it's that you're in a spiritual position that you're not really excited about. Maybe your time with the Lord is dry. There's a sense of just um, defeatedness in regards to sin. And the call to you from this text is to believe the promise that if you seek Him, you'll find Him. And you know what revival is? Revival is with one person and another person and another person and then a whole church and then a whole community catches a glimpse of what happens when we seek God and suddenly He comes and the manifest presence of Jesus is among us and there's a church that's alive and full of life whose aim is to seek the Lord, to believe the promise that if we seek Him, we'll find Him.
So I want to just pray that over you this morning. I don't know where you are spiritually, but the call today is simple. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe the promises in the Word. And to move from the position of wherever you are to a position where God wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our dearly beloved folks who are here today in a variety of spiritual positions. Some today to believe your promise would mean to believe that indeed Jesus does cleanse us from sin. For others to believe the promise means that we are going to believe that if we seek you, we will find you. And so I pray for some today who need to receive Christ and come for the first time to believe in the promise that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. For brothers and sisters in Christ who are here who have already made that decision, I pray there would be an understanding within their soul of what it means to be revived, to see the beauty of what a full relationship with Christ can be. That sin and sense of defeat and lukewarmness is gone and that there's a renewed kindle. And so I pray for some who need simply to pray, Lord, would you unite my heart to fear your name? We see the idols, we see what they are, and we simply want you today to do a work in us that only you can do. And so we humbly come and ask. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a great weekend. And thank you for the promise in your word that you want to revive your church. And you want to do it through your Son and by the Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen. Afterwards, as always, there'll be some folks up here for prayer. If you need to talk with someone or pray with somebody, they're here to minister and help you. Don't leave today if you need someone to talk to, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.